we, we want to posture our hearts this morning. We're, we're looking at the story of David. And we're looking at this not just so that you know more about David, but because there's so much for how this plays out for our lives and what that means for us as we follow Jesus. So, Trev, come on up. Read for us, and we'll go from there. Uh, as Aaron said, I'm Trev, one of the other pastors here at Mission Hill. Uh, chapter 17 of First Samuel is the story of... David and Goliath, you may or may not be familiar with it, even if you have never been to church, uh, but I'll be skipping around a little bit because it's a long, long chapter. So starting in verse 1, I'll read to verse 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and a camp between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came, a, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, which is tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That means heavy. And his shield bearer went before him and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out? Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then jumping to verse 24. All, of, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, Shall it be done to the man who kills him? Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for, them, for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. 
verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of, armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gathu and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. As old as it is, it is still so relevant for us, but we need your servant Aaron to uncover some of the things that we can't see. So we ask that your spirit would be with him, guide him, give him the courage, the wisdom, and the clarity that he needs to proclaim your word to your people this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Trev. Such a good story. I mean, if, uh, if you're still struggling with your Bible, it's chapters like this that kind of get your wind back in your sails going like, oh, that's good. And for parents who don't like violence for your kids, sorry. But, but we read this, and, and I, would, I would assume this to be true, that, that whether you come from a church background or not, the story of David and Goliath is a familiar one. We, we even have in our language the idea of it was a David and Goliath match, speaking to a battle of un, you know, disproportionate, unmatched, you know, it's unfair odds stacked against one hulking opponent to another. 
And we see in this story, it's just, it grabs us not just for what it is, but it grabs us because no one would have thought, no one did think David had a chance. And yet he comes up on top. And, and the lazy reading is this. It's an under, underdog story. We all love an underdog story. But I would, I'd venture a guess that uh, you've heard this preached uh, before, taught on before. And you possibly even heard it taught on in such a way that it was maybe even harmful before. This morning, I, I really, if, if I were to give you invitation, I did this last Sunday, I'm going to continue to do this through our series. If you were to write in the margins of your Bible how to understand chapter 17, it would be this. It tells us, what we're, or, or it tells us how we are to face or to manage our fear and produce real courage. I, as I read through this again and again in preparation for this morning, there's this undertone, this, this, this theme of fear that, that plays throughout the whole narrative. And we, we skipped a few verses, you know, wanting to make sure that we were um, judicious with our time together, but also noticing this, that, that throughout the entirety from start to finish, there is this fear that exists in the people. And we're taught as people, how do we manage fear? How do we subdue fear and produce real courage? Now, now let's, let's begin by just talking a little bit about what does culture say? What does the world say about how we are to manage our fears? How are we to subdue them? Uh, it, notice the scene for a moment, okay? So we have on both sides, on an elevated position, the valley in between, uh, the, the armies have lined up for battle for some time. And we have this pageantry that takes place. We have the champion named Goliath who marches into the valley and he taunts and mocks the armies of God and God himself. And, and there's, there's a couple of things worth noting there just so that you understand rightly the text and what's happening. Uh, first is this. Look at verse 4. The champion named Goliath. Champion literally means uh, the man in between or the person who stands in between. A champion was to go out, and the idea was exactly what the text describes. If I win, my victory is, is given to those whom I represent. And if I lose, the same is true. And so day after day, Goliath would come out in his armor, in his, his size, in his impressive stance, and he would mock. And I would only speculate that he got bolder every day. Because you do this day in and day out and no one shows up, you, you start feeling pretty big and pretty strong. And the question is this, is there a champion in Israel? And, and the implied answer when every day no one responds, in fact, he growls and they flee, look at the text, that's essentially what it says. I, I was confessing this to a, a group of people in our church before this morning saying, you know, I have a problem of kind of reading the humor in the text, but I think that's funny. You know, this one guy stands out and he goes, boo, and then the whole army runs back to their tents. And then they do the pageantry all over again the next day. And you have to ask yourself, why, why is it that these two armies didn't actually race down the hillsides into the valley, which would become a bloodbath designated for warfare? Why didn't that ever take place? You know, why, why didn't somebody go, enough of this, let's just fight already? It, it, two, two things that we can speculate but are likely true. One is, if you're on the Philistine side and you successfully throw out a champion like Goliath, who is 
rightly and successfully intimidating psychologically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually the entire army of the other, other side, you know, you're doing pretty good at chipping away at them one day at a time anyway. By, by the time it actually comes to blows, they've already been defeated. So let's just let this keep happening. And if you're on the Israelite side, whether or not we rush into battle with one soldier or the entire army, nobody wants to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. Now, there's a lot of speculation and and there's some debate, but all scholars would say that, that Goliath, he didn't just stand as an impressive soldier, the very notion of what what he represented was he was the epitome of the ancient version of high-tech, impressive, otherworldly military power. Probably stood somewhere in the realm of, most scholars would say, about eight to nine feet tall, whose armor weighed something between 125 to 150 pounds, his spear weighing about 30 pounds. So you think about that and you go, the fact that he was this tall but also proportionally built, just massive and impressive on the battlefield, anyone would look at that and go, there's no way. Like, how could I even take that guy on? Goliath just towered over them. And and moreover, we, we see this. There's this description given of Goliath. There's a description of this idea of the two champions coming out. Um, a lot of history would, would actually say there's not a lot of evidence, not many instances where two champions would go and fight on behalf of other, uh, their, their nation. However, in the, the few times it does happen, it would likely happen for one of two reasons. One would be, in a case like this, the Philistines are an invading people come from the sea, they're battling their way to make, make inhabitants for themselves in the land. And because God, when he brought in the Israelites into the promised land, their job was to go and subdue it. And through unfaithfulness, they allowed neighboring nations to exist, coexist, and flourish. And so now they're, they're in a land that's, you know, dotted with all these warring and possible enemy groups. And the idea was, if you thin out your armies too much by battling with another, the other one might just come in and wipe you out. Do you ever play the game Risk? It's, it's just whoever stockpiles the biggest army and waits the longest usually wins. And so the idea of having a champion fight wasn't just cost-effective. It was so that your armies weren't thinned out so much that the next time that there's a battle or, or some kind of challenge to your borders, you couldn't defend it. And so we likely have these two nations in a standoff, and yet Goliath every day is coming out, and he's essentially asserting victory. Now, now how does culture inform us to manage and subdue fear? It would say this, take a page from Goliath's book. Make yourself big. Assert your size and your, and your, your physical prowess. You know, it's, it's funny. I don't, I don't do this when I meet with people. So if you're ever like, hey, Aaron, let's have coffee. I'm dealing with fear. This is not a, a tactic I'm going to give you. But I've, I've heard it enough times. Just the, the physical act of making yourself large is supposed to actually help you gain confidence. So you can go in a room, stretch and roar, and then you're supposed to feel good. Go give it a try. I don't know. I'd feel too weird to try that one. But the idea is this. Metaphorically, we try and make ourselves big all the time. You know, talk to your friends about, 
you know, hey, what are you doing? I haven't seen you for a few years. Go to a party, ask about what you do or, or how life's going. Do you not embellish your state of affairs? Everything's going great. We're killing it. Life's awesome. You know, let's downplay all the things that, that perhaps we're ashamed of, we're, we're fearful of, we don't want to see. And let's build up. Let's make big all the things that we can think will, will actually add to our assets. The other thing that we would do is visualize success. You got to love the rhetoric in this. You know, Goliath is like, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to. And it's grotesque, it's brutal, but it, there's so much in the threat. I, I'm going to give your, your flesh to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. I mean, that, that's a visual rep- representation of like, I'm just going to trample all over you. I'm going to crush you. But more than that, I'm going to dishonor you that you won't even get a proper burial. Like, it, this is just meant to evoke fear. I'm going to trample all over you. We see this even in the way we, we psych ourselves up. If you don't know this already, go on YouTube, you know, go on any podcasting platform. There are tons of motivational speakers, books, and authors that they'll just have you know, 60 minutes of, of phrases that you can put in your earbuds that'll be like, you're awesome. There's no one like you. you know, self-confession, man, when I, when I go to the gym, that's what's in my head. I got a few of those mixtapes. Why? I've got to visualize success. You want, if you're a professional athlete and you go to a psychologist, you know what they're going to do? They're going to sit down with you and they're going to be like, I want you to visualize the goal. I want you to see yourself moments before taking the shot, taking the shot, making the shot, pumping your arms in the air. After, like, you're going like, I can do that job. Maybe you could. <laughs> but why? Because you know what? The one thing fear does, it says, I can't. And so we're taught in culture, you want to subdue and manage your fear, tell you you can. And you know what? The more people who agree with you, the more that that fear is going to become really quiet. Goliath gets out there. He flexes his muscles. He stands heads and shoulder taller than everyone else. He's parading armor they've never seen before. And they're going, yeah, you can. We can't. You're awesome. And then the other thing we do or we're taught to do is, is maximize your assets, your resources. Goliath would have been the most high-tech thing that they, anyone had ever seen in a military battlefield. When scripture slows down to give you details like this, speaking to his armor, speaking to the size, the weight, the scale, the, the material, it, it, it does that to try and draw out something that we're supposed to catch. No one saw anything like this before. I'm high-tech, you're low-tech. I'm impressive, you're unimpressive. Do you, like, the sheer image would have been this. Actually, Tim Mackey, of a theologian and co-creator of the Bible Project, if you don't know it, I commend it to you, awesome resource. He actually draws the connection there that, that he would have looked like overlapping armor like, and a snake-like figure that would be defying God's armies, kind of bringing him back to this figure that we would almost see echoed from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Goliath is the epitome of the voice of the oppressor over God's people. Doesn't he even sound like voices we've heard before in our biblical story? Like Pharaoh, who is this God that I should let you serve him? Who is this God that I should be afraid of your armies? You guys are pitiful. Give me one champion. Do you have one? And, you know, like, think about that for a moment. Surely there was somebody in the crowd who got top marks in swords class. And he's going, not me. 
nobody wanted to go forward. And in that place, you know, what, what do we have? We, we have a picture of our modern-day method of how you banish fear, how you subdue fear, and how you create courage. But, but here's the thing. It is fleeting, and it is momentary, and it is not true. Just let me sidestep for a moment and come back to the message. But, but when, when I talk through things like fear and anxiety with people, we, we have to recognize, like, that's there for a reason. Fear tells us, anxiety tells us, you know, in, in the negative, there's a real threat. You would have been a fool if you were in the military ranks of Israel to see this guy, this hulking, incredible, otherworldly soldier stand out in the valley and go, ah, that's okay. I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll take care of him. He might trip and fall. You would look at him and go, that's a real threat. That's the, it, it's the equivalent of Boy Scouts on one side and a tank on the other. What do we do with this? This could hurt me. And, and on the positive side, anxiety, fear tells us this, I care. You know, I want to perform well. I want to do well. I want to live. <laughs> I don't want to die. You know, think of the inner dialogue that goes on for a soldier. You know, you're going to the battle lines. You know, there's a chance I might not come home. But you know what? I'm willing to take that because it feels like even odds. Their weapons are like my weapons. You know, there's, there's honor in, in what I'm doing for my family, the honor in how I'll be buried. And then here you have this guy who comes out, he's like, there's no odds. You have 0% chance. Not only that, I'm going to shame you and I am going to publicly just humiliate the memory of you as I feed your corpse to the beasts of the field. Like, like you go from having a shred of hope to none. And what Goliath is doing, he's standing on this, this mountain of his own bolstered self-esteem and, and courage that is built up of unsubduing fear. And, and you know what? He's the biggest guy in the room, so no one can challenge it. And what I want to do this morning is go, we, we have to do better than that. You take that kind of ideology and methodology into your life, here's, here's just the truth. There will always be someone bigger in the room. There will always be someone who can outdo what you have. There will always be someone who can, has more resources, who's higher tech, who's bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. And he's going to make you feel small. It's going to show to you that, you know what, the things that you care about can be taken away. Show to you that the things you're afraid could happen can happen. And so then how do we produce real courage? Now, there's, there's, again, we can, we can do the exact same thing with Goliath, with David, and still get the wrong message across. So I'm going to preach to you the wrong sermon before I'm going to preach to you the right sermon. Can I do that real quick? And you might have heard this before, but it's we need to be more like David. You know, in, in replace of Goliath's bravado, we need courage built on faith. Courage built on obedience. Courage built on a, a, an assurance, remembering who God is, and then you can knock down giants. You know, name your metaphorical giant, and it'll, it'll just, if you step into faith properly day after day after day, just watch, they'll, get, they'll just get knocked over. I mean, that'll preach. I'm trying to be as obvious in my sarcasm as I can. Because here's what's wrong with that. In this story, we're not given an example. We're given a champion. 
An example says this, go do like David. You know, I'll make my case in a moment, but go do like David. You know, there's so many interesting moments building up to the battle. Like, David didn't go in weaponless. Historians would show that actually the sling, not slingshot, you know, pew, uh, like, like actually a sling that he would, uh, you know, direct over his head and loose a stone at actually high speed with incredible accuracy, that, that actually the sling was a more effective and dangerous weapon than archery's, than archery was, sorry. So he didn't go in weaponless. But he also didn't go in looking like a soldier, you know, you, you got to think about the fear that was so deep in, in God's people that, you know, one kid comes walking around the army and he starts asking the right questions. Who's going to fight this guy? What are we going to do about this? And it gets all the way to the king who goes, hey, you want my armor? Let's put you in. What do you think? We're looking for a champion. There's an opening and you're the only one asking the right questions. Like, that's funny. No king in their right mind should do that. It'd be, son, love your heart. We're, we're looking for a real warrior here. But not, not Saul. He's, he's so ground in fear. You know, and truthfully, what, what should a real king do when his army won't fight? There's no champion to be seen. It's time for me to step up and go into the valley. But he sends a boy. He says, but I'll dress you in my armor. I'll give you my sword. And it says, in the ESV, it says, he, he tested them. He didn't, didn't feel comfortable in them. What, what's that saying? He, he, didn't know, he didn't know battle. He didn't know the tools of war. He knew what it was to be a shepherd. You know, he probably was pretty accurate with the sling. Why? Because he's passing time in the field shooting rocks. And that's the weapon he used to ward off predators. So he's probably good with it, but, you know, it's, Again, the comparison still stands. This is high-tech, weapons of war, 30-pound spear, and kid with a sling. Now, David gets up and he says, God will. Some commentators would say that he knew already, but I would argue this. He, he didn't have a special word from the Lord. He just knew what needed to be done. How do we get that kind of courage? Again, if, if he knew, why five stones? Why not one? If, if he knew, why didn't he say, hey team, when you see the giant fall, here's what you do. He just went, I know what I need to do. Scripture doesn't give us examples, it gives us a champion. Because if you want to write yourself in the story, you don't go into the battle. You're not a Goliath. Like, I don't say this to, to crush you and say there's nothing special. I say this to say we're all on the same footing, that, that there's always going to be someone bigger, scarier than, than you, can bolster their self-confidence and, and stamp down fear and build up the bravado and courage that we all wish we had. But, but we're neither David. If you want to see yourself in the story, you're, you're in the, on the outskirts of the battle, racked with fear. But scripture doesn't give us an example, it gives us a champion. See, Jesus is the one who goes into the valley of the shadow of death, just like David, to fight on our behalf. You see, whatever the champion does is imputed to everyone else. 
says, I'll go stand in place. You know, and, and the definition of courage is not the absence of fear. It's what you do in the midst of fear. And, and we have to, like, okay, self-disclosure, David's my guy. We're in this series because I was like, hey, I got six or seven weeks of what I want to preach on, and I like David. I like him because, you know what, even in his failures, I'm like, man, this guy's heart is awesome. We're reading the story of his public rise to fame. Like, what a great way to start. You know, your campaign as king, your campaign and rise to leadership is like, oh, you're that guy who beat up a giant. You're, you're the kid who stood up and ran into battle when no one else did. And you gotta go, I love that. But he's gonna fail and he's gonna land on his face many, many times. In scripture, we're given this. A champion whose victory is imputed to us. See, we, culturally, we still have this. There are times, either through perhaps legal proceedings or through your accounting or through other specialized practices, you might hire somebody to go and represent you. And what they produce, whether they win or lose, is imparted to you. So you want to put the best person you can in the field. That's exactly what we see happening here. The Philistines are like, that's Goliath, for sure. Israel's like, we got nobody, so David, you'll do. As Christians, here is how we're invited to subdue fear and produce real courage, is, is to realize this, that we have one who lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserve, so that his righteousness is imputed to us, and that there's nothing you need to do that will either earn or impress or bolster who you are. You are declared victorious in Christ. Now, now I want to spend some time on that because if I just simply say that, you might go, what does that mean? How, do, how, does that, how does that work in deep? The fact that, I mean, this should, that very knowledge should excite you about how you understand who Jesus is and what he does. It should excite you about your Bibles because he comes in human form. Why? To do what you can't. To live a life that you couldn't. We've all failed and we'll fail again. And here's one who doesn't. He, he's tempted. He faces everything you could have and far more. And he comes out victorious. And then he pays the penalty and the debt that you and I deserve to pay. And he says, impute it to you. Because I'm the champion given for you. Following Jesus is not, you know, okay, I've set the bar really high. Good luck. Some of you have grown up in church environments where every Sunday was a list of things that you're not doing good at, and it was like, okay, go try and do better. See you next week. And, and because we, we kind of like feeling like, okay, I have stuff to do, we would walk out Monday morning and be like, I'm on fire, I'm going to get this right, and by you know, Monday at 9 a.m., we've already messed up. And that's not what it is. You've been given a champion to go, I have been successful, or you will fail. And you need to follow behind me. I, I go before. So that you've got, you've got the path to run. How then do we explain all these incredible moments of real courage in Scripture? I think of in the book of Daniel. As three Israelites are facing being thrown into a fiery furnace by 
the king of Babylon, and, and they say to him, you know what? The Lord might save, he might not, but either way, he's good. Throw us in. I think of Esther, who goes to challenge again a king who, and she says, you know what? I might go and the Lord will use me or I might go and die. Either way, I'm going to go. I think of Paul who writes, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like the, or, to live is gain, die is Christ? I'm flipping them. There we go. Philippians, look it up. <laughs> Where do they get that courage? They're going this. We understand reality as it is. It's going to come together. It's going to work out. This is the promise for Christians. It's not that we can subdue and banish fear indefinitely. You can't even do that as a Goliath or a David. But as a Christian, you can go, I I know where to put my fear in its proper place. And so I I would say this, how do we do this? And and I'd frame it in a possibly negative sense, but I, I want you to hear it. Probably one of the most accurate things I can say to you and yet most harmful things I can say to you if I don't explain it as a pastor is you just need to learn how to preach the gospel to your heart. Because if I just leave you on that moment, you'll be like, how? You need to learn to apply the truths of scripture, the truth of the gospel here on your own so that you can do this day in and day out. But if you don't know how, we need to equip you because... In my role, I'm so privileged that I get to meet with people in this church every week, but people outside of this church all over the city every week as well. And that's one of the things I hear almost every week is someone will come in and say, you know what, I love Jesus, I want to follow him. My pastor tells me I just need to preach the gospel to my own heart, but I don't know how to do that. And so I'm languishing in anxiety, and I am fearful of how I am to move, and, and I want to equip us with this text, and it's simply this. Stop visualizing your own success and visualize the success of Jesus. You know, take, take a moment and go, like, it's not you scoring the goal. And I don't care if it's your time in the gym, your muscles, your strength, your skill, who gave that to you? What has God already won for you? What victory is, is given to you that you need to visualize and take into your heart to know that you'll be Okay. My wife and I do this all the time. By the way, if, if you want, like, I feel a little hypocritical preaching this message because as a couple, we, we just embody anxiety sometimes. We'll sit on the couch and, and we'll, we'll work through the worst case scenario. It's like date night. <laughs> and, and this is how my wife operates. She's like, worst case scenario, our world, like the sky is falling. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I get into hyper planning mode. I'm like, all right, we're going to build a bunker. And in that bunk, these are the friends we're inviting. Like, like, I go to that extreme right away. By the way, that's just examples, not true. Uh, like, I, I go to this super extreme of like, wow, we, we got to jump that far. And then eventually we come back. And usually it looks something like this. What is the worst case scenario? Everything falls apart. But who's, who's there even if it falls apart? Well, our Savior is there. And because he's there, it'll be okay. So if we lose everything, if that decision flops, if that investment comes belly up, we're going to be okay. And you know what happens to anxiety? It's still there, but it's in its proper place. Because you know what? We're able to move forward knowing this. Somebody who has already won a victory, that can't be taken from me. 
And that means everything. You know, practically speaking, this should be with you every day. You know, not too long ago, I went and did a, a fitness class with all 20-year-olds. And to banish the anxiety that was inside me, I went, I am going to be the best at everything. Because what I wanted to banish was this fear of, I'm getting older. And so every lap, I was at the front. Every set of push-ups, I did the most. Every weight, I was like, well, who's lifting the most? I'm going to lift more than that. And you know what? I did. But here's where I lost. They were walking the next day. <laughs> Momentary and fleeting. Did that help me? No. It proved to me the next day, Aaron, you're not what you were. How true is that for life? You know what? Everything, we can lose and we will lose everything. But guess what? There's a victory prepared for us that cannot be taken. Christians, that's your hope. We need to visualize his success. Moreover, we need to make God big. You know, the culture says this, Goliath looks big, make yourself big. And when eventually you're big enough, you'll be able to squash your Goliath. No. God's big enough. That's why we gather and we worship. So if you're not a singer, at least engage with the lyrics. Engage with what we're trying to proclaim. Engage with what's communal in this moment. It's going, God, you are big. God, you are great. God, you're bigger than my fears. God, this thing that I'm worried about, I'm dealing with this week, I know you're bigger than that. I'm putting you in your right place. I'm reordering my disordered heart into right reality so that I see you as bigger than my fear. And in that I have courage. I have courage that, you know what, I can keep going. This threat's still there, but you know what? I have someone who's bigger to go before me. I have a champion that's already won that victory. I would also say this, it causes us to consider his resources and not our own. That one really struck me in this preparation of this message. Because I, I do this. I, I instantly go, like, what's in my hands to do? I said, I'm a planner. And I'll leverage every asset, every resource, every relationship I have to kind of go, am I okay? And eventually I come short because I'm finite. And my resources are finite. And then I remember, I am co-heirs with Christ. Everything afforded to him is in my hands. Now, not, not in the sense of like, man, I can be abusive with this. But God's equipped and he's prepared and what he calls me to, he will provide for. You know, I need to remember that constantly. As I, as I lead and, and, and make decisions for this church, I have to remember that because I'm, I'm often going, God, we don't have resources for that. We don't have people for that. I don't know if we have the courage for that. And, and, and then I have to remember this. I'm measuring the wrong resources. We've got the most high-tech otherworldly, unbeatable champion in our corner who's like, yeah, strike me dead and I'm coming back. Who goes to, to hell for us to proclaim victory in our place. Like, think about that. There's nothing that can stand. And so we consider, you know, we banish fear by not considering our resources, but by considering his. In a moment, we're going to approach the Lord's table. Rob's going to lead us. 
But I, but I encourage you in this, that this is not just an opportunity to do this because it's rote, but to actually remember the, the multifaceted beauty of what we celebrate and share together as God's people. And it might simply be for you this, this morning. So I go, Jesus, I have been taking stock of all the things that I bring to the table and I am constantly anxious and worrisome. But God, I forgot what you provided for me, represented in your body broken, in your bloodshed that tells me this, I can have courage to keep going. It's been imputed to you. I love that word because it simply means this, what Jesus has done is yours. So you wanna impress him? You can't, because you can't outdo him. But you wanna receive victory? It's yours, because he gives it freely. You want courage for for today and every day. And I know we're all facing a myriad of different things. He still offers the only thing that can subdue fear and produce real courage. And that's his life given for you. Let me pray. And we're gonna sing a song as we do that. You're welcome to come and get the elements. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for an opportunity to talk about something that we avoid with such tenacity in our lives, Lord, and put so much energy and focus to subdue, which, God, you have already won a victory so that we can walk in courage. And, Lord, the Christian life is not one of without fear, but one of fear in its right place. Jesus, I thank you that in this story, we, we know through the gospel and right lenses that, Lord, we're not called to chase an example we can't reach, Lord, we are called to embrace the victory of a champion and that's given to your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we come to your table and, and for this is for those who have said, whether for the first time this morning or for it's been true for their life for some time, Lord, you're their champion. I wanna partake in the victory you've given me so that we would banish fear and walk in courage. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.